For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile. And the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time. There's Granger, Offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, click Grainger.com, or just stop by. Granger For the ones who get it done. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hey everyone, Yas here, and I just wanted to say it's great to have you join me today because I'm sure we're going to have another fantastic episode. So whether you're here for the first time or if you're one of the repeat loyal listeners of the show, I truly appreciate you. But before we get to today's guest, I just have a small favour to ask, and that's if you could just take a brief moment to hit the subscribe button if you haven't already, ensure that you share it with all your coaching friends, and don't forget to get in touch guys. Let me know your thoughts on what you think of today's episode or any of the recent episodes you've listened to. You can do this on Twitter at the Coaches Net. Once again, that's at the Coaches Net. And please make sure you do, as I'd love to hear your thoughts, guys. Anyway, on to today's show. I hope you enjoy it. Have a great day, guys. The Coaches Network. Hey, guys, you're now listening to the Coaches Network podcast, a podcast aimed at anyone who's passionate about athlete, talent, and personal development. My name's Coach Yas, and I'm a UEFA A licensed football coach, coach developer, and content creator. I'll be sitting down with a range of guests to discuss their journeys, their life lessons, and how you can make an impact. Enjoy. Right, guys, welcome back to the Coaches Network. My name's Coach Yas, and I've got a very special guest with me today. Our guest today is Shane Pill. Afternoon, evening, Shane. How are you? Yeah, I'm well. It's probably late night rather than evening, yes. <laughs> awesome. Um, Shane, just before we get into the real thick of the conversation, um, maybe just give a brief insight around who you are and what you do. Who am I? Well, I'm a son, father, husband. Um, I've been living in Adelaide for the last 27 years. I was in Perth for nine years before that, and then in Adelaide for 21 years before that. So I moved to Perth, start my teaching career because there were lots of job opportunities over there. Moved back to Adelaide when we're starting a family. Former physical education teacher, science teacher for 18 years. I was on a principal pathway, wasn't enjoying being in an office all the time. Opportunity came up to try out teacher education, took two years leave without pay and tried that out. And I've been at Flinders University now for 17 years, teaching and researching in physical education and sport coaching. Awesome. And I, I love how you started that off with um, very much who you are as, as a person. And, and to other people as well, rather than, you know, your profession. But obviously in the back end of that, you talked there about, you know, having a career in physical education and becoming a researcher. So could you just give us a bit of insight around maybe what your, um, if you like, your niche areas for research are? Yeah, when I came to the university, I, one of the professors was at a, a front office only a couple of weeks into my time at Flinders University. And he said, oh, so you're the, the new phys and uh, yeah, what's your research area? I thought, research area, I've just come from 18 years of teaching. I've done a master's in educational leadership. What's my research area? I'd never thought of it. And I'd been playing around with this idea of the 
game sense approach in my own coaching for a few years at that stage and just came out and said, oh, pedagogy. He looked at me and went, really? I said, yeah, yeah, I'm interested in how you teach things. So pedagogy, not biomechanics, not skill acquisition. I'll leave that to the scientists. So I'm a, I'm a teacher. I'm interested in pedagogy, how people learn things. I thought it was really interesting that in a school of education, someone would be surprised that I was interested in pedagogy. So, so I, I started, my focus of my research was on a, a game-based approach broadly, but the game sense approach specifically and, and how that could be used in both junior and adult sport. My research in uh, recent years has evolved to look at how the game sense approach can be used in traditional games teaching and how it aligns with Indigenous pedagogies for teaching Indigenous activities, how it can be used for personal social skill development as well as technical and technical development. And recently I've been doing a fair bit of work in the use of uh, teaching approaches for mental health education in schools. There's a, there's a lot in there. I want, I want to take it right back to the start. Now. And, you know, you talked there about um, research area and obviously I asked you that question. Um, from your from your experience and from your from your perspective, how, how, just how important is it, even if you're not an academic necessarily, um, to have a specialist area that you're actually you, you're focusing on as a coach? It, 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 does, that, does that conversation ever come up in in some of the work that you do, and how important and prevalent that is, maybe? Actually, no, it's it's not come up in the coach development work that I do to have a, a specialist area. So much as it's important to be curious. Um, we ask our players to continually develop and put their faith in us that through the interventions that, that we provide as, as coaches, our coaching programs, that the players will be better tomorrow than what they are today. And I think the coaches need to model that by attempting to be better tomorrow than what they are today. So they have to prioritise their own education in order to demonstrate that they're learners just as the players are learners. So it's more about how you go about developing yourself as a coach. And most of the coaches that I work with are game day coaches, and they're interested in how to um, improve the learning of their players, accelerate the learning of their players, have their players become more um, game sense, game intelligent, and how to maximize the capacities of the, the group of players that they've got with the limited time that they've got. So what's an efficient as well as effective way of packaging the program of learning over a pre-season, in-season um, time constraints that you have with the players? I think, I think it's brilliant that you mentioned that because I think for me, as in a coach developing myself, you know, one of the biggest things I always say to coaches that exactly what you just said there on, it's it's not an environment where we're just developing players, but also it's an environment where the coaches need to be developing too. And if the players can understand that um, we're as much on that journey as they are, then I think that it can build a lot of um, it can it can lay the foundations of having some really really open and honest conversations and relationships with your players. And I think it's such an it's such an important factor within that. And I, and I want to come back to your you know your research area. You talked about pedagogy being being that, and obviously. You mentioned the, the idea of a game sense approach. How, how, how did you fall into that in, initially? And, and 
Would you mind maybe just giving some clarity for some of the listeners who are maybe not aware of what a game sense approach is and how that then differs to some of the other approaches, which are, which are you know, um, some would argue are quite aligned and similar to that, but obviously have the subtle differences as well, such as a games-based approach and teaching games for understanding, obviously where maybe some, some, some of this stuff originated from. Yeah, fell into it is the right word. So yeah, it's quite a number of years ago now, but it was somewhere around 1994 that I was doing my level two coach accreditation in Australian football. And I was living in Western Australia and uh, Rick Charlesworth, one of the uh, iconic Australian sports coaches, long-term hockey coach, very, very successful international coach. Uh, he had written a paper on designer games and his philosophy of packaging, technical, tactical and fitness work and uh, explaining to coaches that if you get the game design right, you don't necessarily have to do separate fitness work, separate tactical work and separate technical work and, and your time is limited. And that coincided with doing the level two coaching course, also putting his ideas in front of us from a, a course that he had presented some work. So there was the article that was published in Sports Coach. There was um, a handout that we were provided of you know, that Rick Charleswood had produced for a hockey coaching course. And I thought, well, this really gels with the way that I'm seeing that my head of department had been teaching phys ed. He'd been trained in the UK and he would start every lesson with a game. And while I wasn't necessarily thinking that he got his students further advanced in game development than what I did coming through a, a warm up into open, sorry, close to open practices and maybe finishing with a game at the end of the session, I, I, I thought that's the class that I would rather be in if I was taking part. So I started to move my planning and therefore practice closer to what my head of department was doing, was having great conversations with him around why he was doing what he was doing. And and then having gone to this level two coaching course and got some theory from uh, Rick Charlesworth's work, it gave me an understanding of why I would be doing it the way Brian was doing it. And then not long after that, the Game Sense approach uh, was released into Australian sport as a, a move towards a game-based approach. And that gelled with what Rick Charlesworth had been talking about and gave me another framing and another reason to continue down the path of being more game-based. I only had one training session to prepare the team that I was coaching for the midweek games that they were playing, whether they were the um, all Catholic colleges games or the state championships games, which was called the Quick Cup. And so I had to be um, very economical with my use of time. So I decided to focus on teaching them how I wanted them to play together, figuring that these are 17 and 18 year olds who are playing club football. They, they know how to play football, but they don't have a system of working together. So and I wanted to teach them a system and a game-based approach enabled me to do that and had some success with the with the coaching. That reinforced that this there must be something behind this idea of doing a game-based approach. A few years later, transferred in my teaching to a um, a, a disadvantaged school. So I've been at a very uh, what's the word to say, a very aspirational 
uh, high income community to a very low income, um, high uh, English as a second language, lots of community problems school. And the phys ed teachers there said that you know, kids weren't really gelling with their PE program. They needed to do something different. So we did a um, did an analysis, came up with a plan, and they saw that I was doing this you know, game based approach based on the ideas of Game Sense. And they said, "Well, we reckon we'll give that a go." And so we implemented the Game Sense approach, game categories across the curriculum, and we had a remarkable um, resurgence in interest in physical education. I think there were four kids doing year 12 PE when I started there in 1996. The year that I left, we had 22 students doing year 12 PE out of a cohort of around about 52, 54 students. So we nearly had half, if not half of the school population choosing to do PE from a base of four students only six years before. So the students were enjoying it. We're increasing the number of sports teams, getting some success with those sports teams as well. But most importantly, we're getting the kids wanting to turn up to training, to turn up to games. And we're getting that both in our phys ed classes with greater attendance and in our sport. So it was it was reinforcing of the adoption of that way of, of going about both my phys ed teaching and my sports coaching. So there was an intersection between you know, sport teaching and physical education. And then being an educator when I went out to coach my sports teams and taking essentially the same pedagogical emphasis. Second part of your question was, how is a game sense approach different from teaching games for understanding, for example? Uh, the, the game categories, the, the core pedagogies of condition the game through modification of uh, the rules so that you have a very clear focus on what you are trying to conceptually teach, tactically teach about the game is the same between the game sense approach and TGFU. Whereas TGFU has a very distinctive six step cycle that you go through, the Game Sense approach is more non linear. It's, yeah, you know, the original research report said the game is the substance of the practice session. Start with a game, focus on a game, doesn't matter as long as the game is the central element of what you're doing. So you don't have to start a practice session with a game, but you would be encouraged to. So there was, there was nothing um, set in terms of a cycle of learning. There was no six steps to work through. It was decide on the game and then use it as a tool to teach. And that's different from you know, TGFU, as I said, which has that very distinctive six step cycle that you yeah. would work through. And I'm, I'm, as you're speaking and everything you've just mentioned over the last few minutes, I've had a few different questions which I think might be quite um, quite relevant for this. And obviously, if I give a bit of context, so obviously we've got me coming through my coach education pathway um, and my coaching education, and I've been doing, I probably started about 13 years ago. And what was back then considered to be uh, the way of doing things was going from a, a process of technique, skill, game that was considered you know the standard approach um there may and obviously that might have some benefits um and then what you're referring to is obviously utilizing more games to essentially utilizing games in a way that it engages the athlete or the players a little bit more it might have to structure and potentially affect how you then deliver the practices or deliver the sessions but um i think the key word you used there was economically um impactful and i think for me i, I 
I look at it that way as well. I think you've got to be efficient with the time that you've got, especially working in it, in an environment where it might not be I get I get access to these participants or these players three or four times a week. It might just be that once a week where you need to have an impact, and that impact could be as little as making sure they're coming back. Mm. So just just talking to the approach itself a little bit there, um, as time went on, especially through my own education, we, we started to see more of a more of a leaning towards these game-based approaches in different in different facets. And I think one of the ones that kind of really stick, sticks out to me was the idea of a whole part, whole session, going from a game, breaking it down to maybe a technical aspect within the game, and then reverting back to the game to see whether there was any developments and what. But the initial game that you put on was almost used as an observational assessment tool to identify where the support may be needed in this given moment. Now, interestingly enough, often now people use a lot of games and they, and then they use this phrase of let the game be the teacher. I, I want to start there. What are your thoughts on that? Because for me, I think it's absolute nonsense, but it'll be interesting to get your views on it. I think it's nonsense because you're there, you're there to coach and in my 37 years, maths is not my strong point, uh, of teaching and coaching. And my own personal experience is if you throw people into a game, they will play that with their existing toolkit. Even if the game is conditioned for particular behaviours, Mostly the players will recall their known technical toolkit, their known solution patterns, and so it's retrieval practice. Now that's really cool if the coaching intention is to consolidate what you already know, do and understand. But if your coaching intention is to stretch them so that they are improving, it doesn't happen just because you're playing a game. Now, it might for some, but I don't think chance is good enough, particularly if you're getting paid as a coach. I don't think a coaching philosophy based on chance that they might pick up something is good enough. The other part of it is, you know, I, I hear Alan Launder, who um, many people might know from the play practice book that he wrote. Alan taught me at teacher's college. And one of the things Alan would emphasise is, yeah, they might play games and they will develop a movement solution. But the movement solution might be what he called a dead end technique. It will take you so far, but no further. And then to go further, the coach has to get you to unlearn what you learnt from playing the games in order to find the space to put in something new so you can actually be better. Mm, mm. And you know, we often see that in a sport like cricket where players will get to a certain level because they've developed a technique and then they're playing against better bowlers, for example, and the bowlers dismantle that technique and they have to go away and add something to their, their toolkit. And, they, and they're wondering, why did nobody coach me out of this technical error, this movement error, whatever it might have been? Now, even when we're at a skate park and we see people um skating that observational learning through mimicry is going how did that person who is better than me do what they're doing and they're having conversations with people they're going to youtube so in essence there's a coach there's there's somebody who's better than them in the environment who is nudging and prompting them to move forward 
Yeah. I think, I think so, you know, it's interesting you say that because I'm not thinking about it. And I'll be honest, when I hear people say, let the game be the teacher, um, there's only two things that come to mind for me. This coach is a fraud. <laughs> um, or, and that's going to be quite controversial, or actually maybe the coach doesn't have enough under, uh, enough or has a limited knowledge, limited reference of how to then support the participants in question at that point in time around what it is that. So they're, they're hoping by osmosis that it's just going to happen, essentially. Yeah. But they they'll never be able to then pinpoint, right, this is this is what the difference was. This is, and, it, and it's, it's always going to be difficult to do that anyway, but it's never going to be a, a, a real, yeah, I don't think they're necessarily better pinpoint, or at least or at least point in the direction of where the development came from, if it did at all come at all. I think that the last part is the assumption that development has come from playing the game simply by osmosis, which is a phrase I also use. But the evidence that that occurs is is not there, and so there's no there's no educational theory that would support doing it that way, and. My bias is that I'm a teacher, so I go to educational theory to help me explain how people learn. Mm. And I, I know of no educational theory that would support just let them muck about for a while and they'll learn what you want them to learn or they will identify what they need to learn. Some might. But again, that word might, I don't think is good enough if you're taking a paycheck as a coach. hundred percent. And I, I guess, you know, it kind of leads me into my next question of if we look at the whole part, whole um, methodology. I, in, in my opinion, I think that to do that effectively and to be real impactful with it, that's a high level skill. It's a high level skill that I think gets taken for granted in that actually what you have to be able to do is not only observe and identify where the support may be needed but actually then have the actual support available whether that be through technical information tactical information whether that be um uh breaking down from an individual perspective rather than a collective or whatever the whatever the you know the observation has given you and actually be able to do that but without having it pre-planned whereas i find um with a lot of people who go down the whole part, whole process, they've already decided what they're going to, what their part's going to look like. But so hold on a second. But the whole point is to observe, respond, and assess. Again, if that makes sense, I don't know if that, I don't know if that's the best way to describe it. But you know, it what, what's your experience with that? If you've, yeah, if you've got good data on your player and you've been doing, whether it be observational analysis or something more formal. You should be able to anticipate what the player's needs will be in that part practice. And essentially, you've set up the first whole part, whole practice, to confirm your assumptions mm. about what players will need when you go into the, the breakdown task. I've, I've nuanced it in the work that I call play with purpose, where you have to start with a game for re retrieval practice and to context your understanding of which players are at the standard that you thought they were, which players are ahead, and which players are not there yet. And then when you go into the practice, some players, because they're not there yet, will need a different practice task to the ones that are where you're expecting them to be so you can nudge them forward. 
And the ones that are already past that, they will need something else in order to continue their learning. So you need a differentiated challenge point because you're going to have players at different learning needs. So after that first game, when you do your assessment and you do your inquiry piece with your players, the, the, the non-linear component of it is, do the whole group need to go to practice or only part of the group needs to go to practice? Do some players need to go back to that first game for further consolidation or they need to move to the next step because they're ready to go to the next step? After the practice, does the practice prepare them to go to the next step or is the practice needed to go back to the first game because they were breaking down in the first game? And this is where I think a game-based approach becomes non-linear pedagogy and the craft of the coach comes in to know what their players need at a differentiated level because you're going to have different challenge points. Of course, and I think something that's really important, I think, about what you've just said there is as much as you've identified this as the task hole and these are the parts, or this is the part that we're going to move into, is actually then having clarity on what the next step actually would or could look like. Mm. Because I think I think that's where I find that uh, with some coaches maybe are so often coaching in the moment, they're not actually anticipating, actually, what happens if they do crack this? And then if we go back to, you know, your use of the word economical, it, it becomes it becomes uneconomical because actually you end up spending what, 40 minutes on something that actually they've done in 10. Mm. Have you anticipated that? But then again, it comes back to what you were also saying about understanding, you know, the, the information and, and the context we, we, we've got on our players in that, if I've planned a practice that they've worked out in 10 minutes that, I've, that I anticipate maybe to, was going to take 30 to 40 minutes for them to do so, then maybe I haven't observed them well enough. Maybe I don't know them well enough. Maybe maybe um, maybe maybe this session wasn't for them, but it was for me. Mm. And I guess, you know, my, my question to you now would be is within within that um, process, just how important is it? I know this is slightly veering off in a different direction a little bit, but just how important is it that if you're not going to go with the games-based approach or use of games, um, how important is it that the game or the sessions, the practices are representative of the game? There's a, there's a fair bit now, whether you're looking at it from an educational perspective or from a, a skill acquisition sports science perspective, that transfer occurs because the conditions replicate the performance that you're trying to do. Mm. So therefore, that notion of replication, that notion of representation um, is, is central for the transfer. Some, I find some sports scientists take that to an extreme and go that unless it's in the game, it's not the game. If I'm passing the ball against a brick wall, I'm going to have variable speed pacing angles coming at me that I have to trap. Yeah. That happens in a game. So yes, while it doesn't contain key perceptual information coupling, it still contains a technical solution that I'll need for the game, perhaps at a level of concentration that I need without the distractions in the environment. And if I was on the pitch receiving that from a player, I, I wouldn't be able to get, one, the volume of practice and, and two, the consistency that I need. So I'm not one of these people that say there are no place for drills. I think the, the skill, the, the pedagogical skill of the coach is to know when a drill is the right pedagogy 
for the learning outcome that's anticipated for the player. So no, no pedagogy is wrong, only wrongly applied. Right, and I, and I fully get that, and I agree with the fact that um, that type of practice that you've just described is not that it's it's uh, it can't be of value and it can't have have an impact. But my 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 um, my thoughts on this are essentially if we've got an isolated practice and looking at really breaking down the technical aspects in that way. If the players are not understanding, because the reality is we're never going to get full repetition. It's never, it's never going to happen. And if it does, it's, 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 it will be so rare that you probably haven't even noticed what it's repeating, if that makes sense. Um, and therefore, how important is the consistency piece rather than understanding that actually these are the variables which are going to impact on my performance? And, you know, my, my, my view on it is obviously just from my experience is that the reason why representative design is so important is because by nature, as players, participants, we lead towards the game because we identify that as the end product and we identify that as the real thing. Whereas if the practices can be representative of that in the build up to that and sometimes in place of that, that could suffice to give the players the engage or get the engagement from the players because it looks enough like the real thing. Yep. So there's an element of that experience. And unless you've got those, you know, those, those, those bits in there, then is the technique that within, and I think it comes back to your example about the cricket player, right? Um, there's going to be a dead end technique that eventually they'll have to unlearn because it's not in response to the real factors that they're going to be uh, or the real variables they're going to be interacting with um, to an extent. Although one may argue, well, actually, they need a base level technique here, but what's the base level technique in response to, if that makes sense? Yeah, there are biomechanical markers of performance that that are there in that are in all sports. And when you lose, I think the trendy word is shape. And you can see that the performance decreases. Your consistency of coordination and control diminishes because those biomechanical markers are not there to provide the stability that's required for the coordination and control. And a very simple one, for example, is we look at head position of a cricketer when they make a stroke. And you can often see that a stroke is mistimed or the bat is misdirected because of the head position. Now you come back to then what gets the head into position and you look down through the kinetic chain. So whether you start from the base and look at the footwork up, uh, often that's what you'll, you'll come to in the end. Where were their feet? Where did that lead their head in relation to their bat? And I think it's the same with kicking a soccer ball. There was a, um, Riley McGee, I think it was, uh, kicked a, a scorpion uh, goal in the A-League a couple of years back. And there was the group of people went, oh, look at that unique assembly in the moment, never been seen before, absolute amazing stuff. But then his coach is interviewed afterwards because his coach is on the boundary going, oh. And everybody else is going bananas because he's done a scorpion kick in, in the box. And being interviewed after the game, his coach has gone, oh, he's been practising that at training for weeks. So this wasn't something that was unfamiliar to the player in yes. It would, he had never done that in that game, in that moment before. So from that point of view, it was unique. 
But was it unfamiliar to him? No. He'd been practising doing a scorpion kick at the goals from various entries into the box for weeks. So from a cognitive perspective, that pattern, when that pattern occurred, that pattern was familiar to him and he had a solution. Because another player couldn't have done that because they didn't have that solution available to them. So we can, as coaches, constrain what our players can do by limiting the solutions that we allow in the environment, or we can open up the possibilities. So coaches are absolutely critical in terms of what is possible for the players to learn, what accelerates the players' learning, and, and conversely, what stops players from learning and stops players from developing completely. I think it's really important what you've said there because it now makes me reflect on some of my own experiences and and one of the key things I always push for is that if you're not going to go, and not that you have to, but if you're not going to go for a practice which has representative elements of the game within within its design, then I think as a bare minimum, as a coach, you need to be um, providing reference to the contextual factors which may exist and impact on within, within that environment even if it is an unopposed practice as an example really set the scene as in the sense of you know if I, it's not a case of right just we're just going to pass the ball back and forth actually Shane I want you to receive this ball as if you've got a player on your right hand shoulder and have a think about how that might affect the way in which you receive this ball now yeah. it's still not the real thing but there's a representative element to it and for me I I I, I I would go as far as saying that I think unopposed practice should be avoided um, unless, of course, you it's, you know it's a one-to-one situation where you know there's no there's there's a, there's a limited things that you can do in terms of in terms of that. But coming back to your use of the word economical, I think the the most economical thing to do is if you have players in the environment, use them, and all of that other stuff in terms of the unopposed stuff is not to say that it doesn't have its benefit, but my, my, I guess the analogy that I always use is, right, this race is 100 metres. I can either be me running the race or I can be Usain Bolt running the race. Now, if we want to get there and we want to be economical about it and we want to hit as many, as many kind of, um, you know, nails on the head on the way through, we're going to have to utilise the game because that's what, that's, that's what they're interacting with. And the reality is, you always get the argument, yeah, but there's not, there's not enough repetition. Yeah, but you're never going to get repetition anyway. So from, from that perspective, what would your advice be to coaches who are now still battling with this idea of, you know, we need to have technical practices. We need to have this, we need to drill in that technique. Um, and, you know, if we play too much games or if we do stuff that's much more game related in that and game representation, representative of the game, we don't get to work on that base level technique. I think there is a need for a base level technique in order to be successful. It's a matter of, okay, so is every top class player, every elite player the best technically? And my oh, understanding from literature yeah, is probably not, but this. they're always the fastest decision maker. Yeah. They make decisions faster and more accurately. And their technical toolkit is good enough to be successful as a result of making those decisions faster and more accurately. 
than the, the next level of player. And there's a lot of research, and yes, I, I know it's from recall, retrospective of what you did, where, but it tells us that during adolescence, the people that make the elite level played more games generally than the people that didn't make it to that level. So volume of gameplay, that representative learning environment is important. Does it always have to be football? No, the research is telling us that it's immersion in the domain. So the domain is invasion games, basketball, lacrosse, hockey, soccer. They're, from a cognitive perspective, developing a similar brain because the principles of play, the pattern recognition is similar. Now, they're not, not going to play soccer during adolescence, but we're not suggesting that the only thing they need to do is play soccer in order to become an elite soccer player. In fact, there's a, you know, a push towards, you know, make sure that they are a multi-sport athlete for as long as possible. But my understanding of the science would see the multi-sport athlete in the domain, and the domain is invasion games. I think it's really important that, you, I don't know, that you've mentioned that, because I think the principles of play are so key here. And I think, for me, you hear you hear so many stories around players who have gone on to become professionals um, that actually have come from maybe multiple backgrounds and then eventually gone to that, 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 down the idea of specialising. But I think it's really I think it's really interesting how you you put it as in the domain of the invasion games and the specificity of it being invasion games because obviously there is some cross you know there's some transferable principles that, that work across all these sports. But I guess from a Are you suggesting then as a coach that without having a strong under, un, underpinning and understanding of the principles of play that you, you probably can't be as effective as, well, there's a limit to your effectiveness in that respect? Without the ones like you who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you with professional-grade industrial supplies. Count on real-time product availability and fast delivery. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. What's the easiest choice you can make? Window instead of middle seat? Picking a vendor who sends a great gift basket? Outsourcing business tasks you hate? What about selling with Shopify? Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage, all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage, Shopify is there to help you grow. Whether you're selling scented soap or offering outdoor outfits, Shopify helps you sell. Wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash try. Go to shopify.com slash try now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash try. 
When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. There's a limit to your effectiveness in being able to put into place representative practice designs if you don't understand the principles of play. The principles of play will lead to the tactics. And when I talk about tactics, I'm referring to the solutions that the player will put in place at the moment and the strategies, how you're going to help your team get a sense of synergy because they understand what their teammates will do in particular. So they can read the context because they have an anticipation of what their teammate should be doing in that context. So yes, if you don't have a good understanding of the principles of play, then it would be difficult to be a game-based coach. Now, that's, I don't think there's anything new. If you would go to the work of Alan Wade from the late 1960s, Eric Worthington, who also came out of Loughborough from the early 1970s, they were emphasising principles of play to develop a tactical framework that through a common language that all the players would understand, but the tactical framework that they laid out for football equally applies to basketball and water polo and lacrosse and, and hockey because they're invasion games. So there's nothing new in this um, perspective that to be a game-based approach and put representative task design to your players, you need to understand the principles of play of the game. Yeah, and I, and I fully agree with you because I guess I guess where I'm where where I'm leading this to is now, if without a foot, because I, I my my fundamental belief is that if you don't have the understanding of the principles of play, then you could then you're not fully aware of the um, environmental and contextual facts which could then impact on performance technically, and. You know, I wanted to kind of maybe rephrase something I mentioned earlier on there being a base level technique. I think more more specifically, in my opinion, what there is is not necessarily a base level technique, but there's some universal factors which can be agreed upon that these are direct impact, you know, directly impacting on technique. Not that it has to be done in a particular way, but these are the areas that we need to consider, if that makes sense. So, you know, potentially, you know, if using your cricket example, the position of the head or the you know the biomechanical factors that are directly having an effect on the outcome of the technical aspects. And I think another thing that you mentioned, obviously, as well, is that the, be the, be you know, the, the, the best athletes in, the, in this respect are the ones who make the best decisions. Um, in, 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 in the game sense approach, and even in, in just the delivery of games and using games as a tool for learning, would you, would you suggest that there's less room for a more command style direct kind of approach to coaching and and it's more geared and more supported and maybe aligned to using maybe a more open communication in terms of guided discovery maybe a q a approach would you say is there any kind of direct correlation to one or the one or the other it's a great question and i used to think that there was more correlation to guided discovery in a game-based approach it was my colleague, Brendan Soucy, who got me questioning that. Mostly the questions that I hear coaching coaches ask their players are not nudging their players towards greater levels of performance. 
they're questions that are asking the players to recall their understanding of the cognitive framing the coaches have provided them at the start of training through the principle of play leading to a tactical perspective leading to the strategy the team's going to play with so it's after that cueing that cognitive framing that's been provided by the coach the questioning becomes really how well do you understand how well are you recalling what we've just done so it's a form of elaboration the most game-based approach most examples that i see coaches using a game-based approach are practice style pedagogy using moston's phrase because the players are practicing what they've been told to do uh, even from an ecological perspective there are illustrations of a constraints-led approach and um, nuances of that which actually set out this these are the rules this is what you have to do and this is the outcome so the players are cognitively cued before they play the game. So they're not discovering anything. Unless you actually put the players out there and go, here's what you have to do, score a goal. Now, go and play. Well, I, I feel like it's really interesting you said it because, you know, I, I often, for me, is if I just give you the task and let you crack on, that's exploration, right? I'm, I'm telling you, I'm, I'm giving up, just all I've done is giving you direction I want you to go in. How you get there is up to you. And I think this is one of the things I think, um, again, I, I often have debates with coaches about is that why is the process important to you? <laughs> if they've achieved the outcome that you've set, why is the process important? Um, it's not necessarily exploration. If they can solve the problem that you've given them with their existing technical and tactical understanding, yeah. Sure. It's recall. Of course. So then, in response to that, then, my question to you would be, what are the typical questions or the, the typical, what is the typical dialogue that you you see and you would describe as an example of them queuing and being very, um, essentially what you're, what you're suggesting is that it, it can be quite leading rather than open. Is that fair? Yeah. What would be, what would be the, of questions. Question? the yeah. and, and what would you recommend that coaches maybe drift towards to become more explorative? That depends on whether the practice is designed to be explorative. Most coaches have a system that they want their players to play to. If they're really good at their craft, they will think about the tools that they have in front of them, the players the athletic profile of those players, where they are in their game development, and they will develop a style of play based on the players that they've got and in terms of where their players can get to as well. So you've got to match your players to the system. If your players don't match the system, you've got to get different players who can play the system that you want. So it's not exploration. It's not, okay, here's an outcome. What do you, what do you know about this? Okay, these are all the things that you know about this. You can't use them anymore. Find something new. That's exploration. But so when we look at the task instructions, if the task instructions are, tell me everything you know about this problem in the game or this objective in the game, right? Yeah. That's everything that you currently know. So if we see that in the game, that's not exploration. That's retrieval practice. So if we list all of those things and go, right, you can't use any of them in the game, you have to find another way. Now we're into exploration. 
Yeah, no, it, it just and, I, and I'm smiling because it, it just reminds me of a direct example I've got in my head of, of, of when I've actually been working with players and I literally say to them, right, um, here's your task. Go ahead, work it out. Give me a solution for it. They've given me the solution. I said, all right, brilliant. Um, now we're going to do it again, but you can't use that same solution. Yep. And then it's just, uh, we keep going, we keep exhausting them around all the possibilities that they can potentially come up with and come up with as many solutions as possible. And then I then I go down the line of, okay, fine. Um, based on all the solutions that you've tried, which ones did you feel most comfortable with? Which ones did you feel the most effective? And and do they do they align? Like, did you find that with some, as an example, um, let's just take a Cruyff turn as an example. Or did you find that when you did your Cruyff turn with your right foot, as opposed to when you did it with your left foot, it had an impact on it? This is the exploration because I'm not getting to unpack and understand and learn about the context of of which they've applied it. Because actually, was it that the 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 uh, the right footed Cruyff turn was more was more impactful, more effective, more comfortable, or was it the fact that when you did the right footed one, the defender was on the um, on the wrong side of you? Therefore, it it the perception is it was more comfortable and more impactful, but actually, it's because of where the defender was rather than the actual use of your left, your right foot, as an example. And, I mean, w- would you would you suge- would you agree and suggest that that's that that's going down the explorative route or? I would say it is. Yeah, absolutely. Because you're exhausting their understanding and you're taking them to find a unique solution. That's that's exploration. And they'll be able to either understand or do something that they couldn't do before. Sure. So then I guess the thing that comes to mind now then is I thought I believe now then based on what you've just what you've explained to me that is that there's a danger that a lot of coaches um, and certainly with my observations, a lot of coaches are suggesting some of the work that they're doing is very much player-centred or rather it's player, player-led, but te- it's in some ways still coach-centred or, or, yeah, I think I got that right way around. Um, I, I would argue that it's still player-centred because you're asking them to do the thinking by the questions you're asking, but you're not taking them to a place of discovery unless you've got their complete thinking visible to you. And then you're saying, now that we've got your complete thinking visible, you can't do any of that stuff. But is, is, is that where we have to maybe distinguish and, and get clarity on the difference between player-centred and player-led? In that it could be player-led, but focused around where the coach maybe wants to take it, if that makes sense. So yep. then it, it's player-led, yep. but coach-centred, or maybe, I don't know. Yeah, that's where Moston's spectrum of coaching styles that we published last year is really useful because there is that nuance between being player-centred and player-led, where the player is actually asking the questions and the coach is becoming a resource to help yeah. ask it, as distinct from the coach asking the questions. Because, you know, I think it's a great point because, obviously, in, a, in many cases... I think it can be misunderstood and mis um yeah misunderstood that actually the players are not at the center of it if the coach is leading it but actually they're two separate things aren't they and I think this for me where again you can go full circle and go back to the the idea of let the game be the teacher oh yeah we're making it player centered and the, well, actually is it really player centered 
Yeah, I think in the literature, the distinction between coach-centred and player-centred comes down to the nature of the of the dialogue. So the take the coach that is always directive, yeah, command style, is coach-centred. The coach that deliberately matches the pedagogy to the learner need to get the outcome that of improving the player, that's player-centred because you're diagnosing the need of that player and intentionally using a pedagogy the player needs to get the performance improvement. If that happens to be command, because you're at the stage where you need to engage your prefrontal cortex and give concentration to it, it's not going to be um, myelinated to the extent that the neural pathways are really efficient and so you can bypass prefrontal cortex and you know, be automatic. So you, you need the players to concentrate on it, then you may be more commanding, but commanding, it doesn't necessarily mean that you're telling. It can also be the way that you're asking a question. Yeah. You are just on that, then, then, commanding a behaviour by the use of the question as well. Right, of course. And, and just to build on that then, you know, something that kind of jumps at me in my head is that how important is it then that the players are fully aware of the, of, of the, of the process that, 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 that this being carried out, if that makes sense? Does that, is, there, is there anything that suggests that, that their awareness of the process can have a direct influence on how effective or impactful that can be? If, I don't know if, that, if the question makes sense to you, though. It does. It comes down to your theoretical perspective. If you, um, if you are comfortable in educational psychology, which tends to come from a cognitive perspective, then you would say it's critical that the players know why they're doing what they're doing and what the success criteria is. Otherwise, the players have no self-determination that they are being successful and they've got it. They've got to wait for the coach to say, you're successful and you've got it. So having success criteria, knowing uh, what the outcome is that's expected, the goal, is essentially what we call explicit teaching so that the player can have the capacity to be self-directed and self-aware of the learning that is occurring. And then just to build on that then, you know, you talked about explicit teaching implicitly, then how important is it that they're able to actually articulate and demonstrate their understanding and their perception of it? Or is that not as important as just having the awareness of it? If that makes sense. Oh, you have to be able to do it. So there's a, there's a level of cognition where I can tell you what's happening in the game, but I'm not able to do it yet. Sure. Yeah, so I can't play football but i can tell you how to play football mm. so someone who is skillful knows what to do has the toolkit to be able to do it in the context of the game yeah and i mean the reason why i asked the question is because you get this you get this age-old thing of people saying oh um it's just instinct but is it then for, for me i don't believe it is i believe there's there's, there's clearly some um uh, awareness taking place, whether it's conscious or, or subconscious, there's there's a reading of the of 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 you know, there's things that you're, you're you're identifying, like you said earlier about you know in some ways it might be distorted based on recall, but actually certain things have happened in that environment in that moment where you've interacted with this variable, that variable, this information that's come across to you, whether you realise it or not, that's then formulated the decision that you've actually ended up making. At least that's how I see it, anyway. Um, so I guess. Is is there is there a level at which they actually should have an understanding what those variables are, and that it doesn't lean on the idea of instinct, if that makes sense? 
Yeah, it's a great one. So instinct and intuition. Is that based on your awareness, which is based on your understanding? From my reading of some of the neuroscience, yes, it's like creativity. Creativity is actually built on your knowledge of the area that you're working in. Of course. So creativity is not some magical thing that just happens. It's actually built on your knowledge, awareness, your understanding of the situation and capacity to take that and apply it to new and novel solutions. And that's where the creativity piece would come in, the application to the, the new, the novel, the unique situation. Yeah, because so, so, so again, we, we can't be instinctive on things that we have no knowledge of. Yes, yes. Because essentially, what you're saying, and this is, you know, this is the way I view, you know, creativity in that respect as well, is that, yes, it's creative in the sense that I've come up with different solutions or different, you know, different, um, yeah, processes, if you like. But actually, those processes are based on the framework of what I believe can exist, mm. and what's human, you know, what's physically possible, and that's not something that can be made up. That's a perception. If I, you know, if I look at it from this side of the, the equation, I say, well. Actually, from where I'm standing, it doesn't look like four feet. It looks like six. Now I'm looking at it as actually I can do six, six feet or six meters worth of movement there. Yep. Whereas if I'm looking at it from that perspective, I've only got access to the four, then I'm only going to re react to the four and be limited by that. So I guess, my, my you know, how, so coming back to my previous question, when I, when, you know, in, in suggesting that obviously a games-based approach may align itself to a particular type of coaching style. What are some um, questions which you think are really effective and positive for play for coaches to lean on in delivering that games-based approach and really extracting and becoming more economical with the use of that? I think it's very contextual and it depends it depends on the age, experience, the direction you want to take them in. In my play with purpose work, I've got a framework uh, so coaches can think about the questions that. Uh, intentional going in, so everything's aligned. The questions support the learning. They're not ad hoc in the moment questions. If they're ad hoc in the moment questions, you're not intentionally aligning from pre-impact planning to impact delivery to post-impact reflection. So the questions need to be as intentionally designed as the activities that you're getting people to do. So within that, though, we can always think that the questions will always be about time, space, force, um, flow or momentum of the game, and the consistency of coordination and control of our body. Mm. So just just to build on that, then, is there any guidance around when these approaches should start to be introduced? So I mean, I'm 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 of the mind that you can start with these games-based approaches from as young as four, or at entry level. Um, but I often get the refute of, well, they've got no technique. Well, my experience tells me if I throw them into a game, they're going to work it out. <laughs> um, yes, there's going to be some support from me in terms of some of the considerations and the variables that I, want, I wanted to, 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 to really take on board and um, identify and, and, and become comfortable and familiar with. But ultimately, if I put a ball on the pitch and there's 2v2 and they're four years old, guess what they're going to do? They're going to run after the ball. They're going to try and move the ball from A to B to wherever they feel is appropriate. And they're going to try and end up scoring. Now, over time, 
through the interaction that I have with them, they will identify for themselves what processes have been effective for them. Because it's not let the game be the teacher. I'm here to facilitate and support the learning element and bring their attention to some of the things that may, may not have considered at this point yet that are essentially having a direct impact on them, whether they realise it or not, i.e. that same movement pattern, that same movement solution that, they've, that they're currently utilising isn't going to work against Shane in the same way it's going to work against John. But it's my job to now help them determine and understand the reasons as to why that is the case. Yep. And if I can help them do that and become get them to become attuned to those factors, then yes, you can start the game from as young as three, four, or at entry level, or whatever, whatever, whatever age or stage they're at. What What are your thoughts on that? And what would your guidance be to coaches who may be still resistant and leaning on the idea, well, they need to have some basic level technique or whatever that ends up looking like in theory, um, but they need to have something before they can go into that. Yeah, I agree with you. You can start a game from entry level but also what a young person will consider a game someone with more experience will consider a drill because the challenge point determines the level of um motivation so for example you i put a target between you and i and go first one to hit the target scores a goal yeah and i'm four years of age and i'm still learning to coordinate and control my body get my foot in the right position to hit the ball with the right force to project the ball that's a game yes. now if i do that with a 24 year old playing premier league that ain't a game that's a drill yeah yeah okay so then i guess it, it kind of leads me on to something else that i've been playing around with in my head over the last few weeks and, and months in particular around um is really just the most important thing to you know get everyone in a state of flow. Oh, gee, that's taken us in a different direction. I've got a PhD student who's actually looking at that at the moment in table tennis. Yeah, do elite, uh, do elite athletes always operate in flow or do they operate at peak? And there's some contention around when it's peak and when it's flow because Athletes tell us there are times when they have to pay more conscious attention to what's going on, and there are times when things just seem to happen. Yeah. So the question that I don't have the answer to, because I haven't read an answer in the literature at the moment, is when is it peak and when is it flow? And do athletes have to be in the flow for optimal performance, or is it enough to be at peak? Surely it's subjective though, right? Yep. It's, 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 it's my it's, it's my perception of whether I'm in flow or peak. And no, it, there, it, there it, are there are um, what am I going to call them? There there are markers yeah. of being in flow, and if those markers are absent, you're not in flow. The characteristics. So if you hit yeah. these characteristics, you're you're going to be in flow. If a couple of those characteristics are not there, the question becomes: We haven't hit all the characteristics. So were you in flow? Do you have to have all the characteristics or are there central characteristics and others? And I think from the from my understanding of the work with my PhD at the student at the moment, that's one of the questions that's being asked. Right. And it, it, but then is, is it possible that those characteristics are perceived differently? Therefore, 
it could be flow, but not peak, and vice versa. It could be. Um, if I'm climbing on a rock face, I might have to give peak concentration yeah. because it's scaring scaring the wits out of me because as many times as I do it, I'm still doubting that rope. Yeah. <laughs> Somebody else gets on there and they've got complete trust in the equipment yeah. and that brings a different level of um thinking to it because they're not worried about the rope the whole time yeah there's less stress yeah. less, less anxiety of all those external factors because it, it's, it's quite interesting because obviously um you know where i first kind of maybe stumbled on, on this on this thought process around how much of an impact and influence this may have was actually just you know in, in a in, in a piece i read about the difference between russian wrestlers and american wrestlers in that russian wrestlers they 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 go after flow, which isn't necessarily the case traditionally for the American wrestlers. They go off the peak um, to the point where actually if the Russian wrestlers are are engaging in sparring or grappling with someone who is going off the peak. They actually they actually um, resist the interaction because they, they they're so keen on staying in flow rather than moving to peak. And then it made me, it made me think actually well. Um, I then look at my own myself and the way I train and when I feel most enjoyable and when I feel like I've actually extracted the most from it and when for me time has flown if you like or actually I, I, I'd have to do more reading to really identify for, you know, from your perspective what the characteristics are that are, that are associated to flow but I certainly feel like I can understand when I'm in flow and when I'm, in, when I'm, when I'm going off the peak or when I'm in peak um, and it, does it have to be different? It has to or be different my... if you're a researcher in these things and you're trying to define what it is. Yeah. <laughs> I think if you're an athlete, no, it's you're concerned about whether you performed to the level today or not. Fine. So then within that, okay, if I bring it back to this games-based approach stuff, um, really, my experience would tell me, you know, I'm happy to hear otherwise, that the reason why the games-based approach can be effective and useful is because it probably, whether the research points this out specifically or not, but it, it, is it possible that it could lead players to be more inflow because of the engagement factor? I, I, don't think, know that's that's pretty, I think that's a pretty good hypothesis. And I think the last part is the engagement factor is the key. Yeah. Anecdotally, when I ask players, tell me your most memorable practice session, it's generally when they've played games. One sticks out. I interviewed someone for a research project and he said, we had a coach who every time we lost a game, he would punish us on Wednesday night by playing a trial game. It was their best training session. We were playing a game. He thought he was punishing us by having a game in the middle of the week. We loved it. It was the best training session. So then, because this, this is another idea that I'm playing around, but I don't know if there's any research that kind of correlates to it or not, but it's it's all about the feeling. It's all about emotion, right? Um, do a practice, you know, we've got a practice session tonight, we do a training session tonight. What's the first thing players are going to do when they get there? Well, they're going to try and get the balls, and they're going to try to start smash the goal, or smash the ball at the goal. Now, uh, I'm toying with the idea that actually 
they do that because it's not necessarily the action. It's the emotion linked to the action and the perception of what that action will then bring them. If we can tap into that, be clever and uh, creative with the way in which we uh, then design our practices, our games, and, and the, you know, the constraints we put it, the conditions we put on it, and the incentives we apply to that, to then create a situation where we can, if you like, invoke that emotion and that perception of that action of scoring or hitting the ball in the goal to, let's say, a tackle, to, let's say, a um, an aerial duel, whatever it may be. Can we get everyone in flow and now I will for everyone's flourishing? I don't know. I don't know. It's just a, you know, um, a magical idea in my head. Whether it, whether there's any truth to it or I, I, I don't know yet. I mean, I certainly have a belief and faith that it, there is a, there is some thing there. But, I, you know, I, I don't know if there's anything enough in the literature or, or if you can maybe add some insight around anything on that. I wrote a blog on that on my learning through sport blog. And my understanding is that emotion helps us create memories. Exactly. So much, so much things, so many things happen to us in our lives. The things that we remember tend to have an emotional response. So a mate of mine who is a physical activity entrepreneur, he talks about the importance of creating the Monday morning story. So whenever he runs an event, part of his planning is, I want people talking about this physical activity on Monday morning. How am I? And that's what color runs do. At the end of your color run, there's all these photos of you with this powder all over you, creating a Monday morning story. It's no different than going a normal 5K run, except at the end you get spray painted. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But the spray paint gives you the Monday morning story. Look at all these colors and look at us all. And there's photos. Correct. And what are people talking about at the water cooler on Monday morning? Or over a cup of coffee. Yeah, yeah. Oh, I saw that photo of you. Gee, you look great with all those colours all over you. Yeah, I mean, you're just taking my mind in a different direction now. Because one of the things I, I I'm um, thinking about as you're speaking is, um, and it's again we're going full circle because we're talking about areas and specialism and niches and things like that. I think like one of the things that I'm, I feel like I'm effective at and, and have a real keen interest in it is actually in the way in which I communicate my messages to my players. Um, and I actually stumbled on it by accident, really, because it was just a way in which I learned and I processed information that you could give me a whole bunch of things that you're saying to me. I don't understand your words, but I see it as an image. And then, um, you know, as as an example of that, I'll say. OK, a, a recent example I've used with players, you know, we talk about the idea of receiving open body shapes and, uh, and being side on and being open so that we can play in both directions. Now, for me, that's all well and good, but actually that can go over anyone's head. Depending on what their contextual understanding of the, and, and, and how knowledgeable they are already on the subject matter. Right. Um, so when I hear those messages, all I can see in my head is is Nemo, the fish. <laughs> right. So. When I'm saying to, when I'm saying to players, yeah, just think about Nemo. So you know, the idea being that, okay, if I need to be able to see both directions, it's exactly how a fish would see it. They don't see what's in front; they see what's on the sides. So if I imagine that both my shoulders are my eyes, I need to have one, you know, seeing where the ball's coming from, and the other one maybe seeing where I want to take it. 
now all of a sudden I'm in an open body shape in relation to the context of the game and how I want to operate within it. Now, ever since I started using, well, my understandings and my imagery around all the different, you know, aspects of, of, of coaching with players, I found that, that, that the messages stick. And, you know, again, I haven't done any actual testing or analysis on it, but my strong belief is that actually it's because that that the image has now invoked an emotion and in the emotion could be as it could be as little as um a form of pleasure oh i get it yeah, it's such a simple message and now i feel happy about it does that make sense i don't know if, if, I, if, yeah. if i'm if i'm standing a bit airy fairy here but i think there is there is something there and you know then it leads me down to this other path where I said, you know, and I have this conversation as a coach developer with coaches sometimes. You're not going to be able to explain everything, but sometimes you know it's the right thing to do in the moment. And that's coming back to instinct, intuitiveness, and just not necessarily being able to explain it, but you understand some of the the, the, the variables that, it, that are, are existing within that environment and the context of that moment, if that makes sense. Yeah, using metaphors, and there's a lot of evidence that metaphors help create understanding. Mm. You're attaching also, you know, everybody knows Nemo. Nemo's really cute, brings back a nice memory, helps to focus on, let's be like Nemo. Um, but it's the metaphor that's really powerful in the communication because people get it. It brings up an image and that image helps them to make sense of what you're trying to explain. In volleyball, we talk about look through the window to get the hands in the right position yeah, with the thumb okay. and the finger. So again, a metaphor, an image, which helps get the hands organized in the right position. Then if the hands don't get in the right position, you might be going, well, it's probably to do with the elbow. So we're looking at body shape again. Elbows probably weren't wide enough. So we talk about chicken wings. Everyone goes, yeah, I didn't have chicken wings to look through the window. So again, use of metaphor, bringing up the images, creates that memory peg. Yeah, I know, chicken wings. Chicken wings brings up a nice memory for me. I know, chicken wings. No, I, lo I, lo I love it because the thing is, right, um, it gets to a point where, I think, you know, now the more I think about it, it's actually the emotion is probably is great because in some cases they're looking at the imagery and, and the, the metaphors that we attach to it as very playful and very, um, in some ways, silly. But actually it makes sense. Therefore, now again, it brings up that emotion piece, right? Um, yeah, we're, we're going to go off on a tangent here. <laughs> but no, I, yeah. I think, honestly, Shane, I think there's, there's so there's so much in what you've said already that you know I think is um has been of great great value and great uh, and a great reflection for me personally, and I'm and I'm sure it has been for some of the listeners as well. Um, but I guess from you know on a final note, my question to you would be: What would be your key takeaways that you really you want really want coaches to consider off the back of this conversation, just to maybe think about applying in their own practice? Play games, play games more often, but play them with purpose. So you're the coach. You know your players, where you want your players to go to. So the game is an educative tool. You use it educatively, purposely by the questions that you ask, the cues that you use to cognitively set how you want them to be thinking about the outcome of the play, but play more often. Hey, kids, kids come to football because they want to play football. They go to training because the coach says you've got to go to training to play the game. So if we want more kids to play, make training playful. 
piece of advice. So I guess just to build on that, then Sean, obviously uh, Shane, sorry, you mentioned there you've, you've got a blog, obviously a researcher. It, wh- where can people go to find out a little bit more about the, the stuff that you put together? I've got the Learning Through Sport blog. Easy enough to Google and you'll get hold of that. ResearchGate has all of my publications, so if you don't have access to the journals, you can sign up to ResearchGate and get hold of pre-pubs or if they're open access, um, copies of all the research that I do. Um, Google me through Flinders University if you'd like to send out an email and connect and have a conversation. So Google Flinders University and that'll give my email address. Amazing. Amazing. Shane, thank you very much for your time today. I really appreciate it. It's uh, It's been really insightful and um, it's been a lot of food for thought and even just clarity for, for me in terms of my own journey, my own perception. So I really appreciate that. Great to have the chat. Thank you for the invitation. Well, there you have it, guys. Another episode of the Coaches Network podcast, where our aim is to bring the world of athlete, talent and personal development together to just one platform. And you can help us with that mission right now by sharing this episode or any of your favourite episodes with everyone that you can think of. You can tag us in those mentions as well on Instagram at The Coaches Network or on Twitter at The Coaches Net. We look forward to hearing from you. Let us know what you thought about today's episode. And until next time, guys, take care. For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile and the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time, there's Granger, offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. Catch those springtime vibes all over Arizona. Break out of the winter blues by hitting the water at one of our lake and river parks. Take a hike among the wildflowers. Just make sure to stay on the trails and leave the flowers for the bees. Discover Arizona's best kept secret and visit azstateparks.com slash amazing to start your springtime adventure.